Chuck Faber is the academic dean at Boise Bible College, so he obviously lives in Boise, Idaho, but he spent his formative years in Japan. He lived there till he was a young adult. And the part of the city in which he lived was a very crowded area. The streets were very, very narrow and usually about one to one and a half lanes wide. So in that environment, you might understand, people found it much easier to get around by driving motorbikes rather than by driving cars. Well, one particular day, Chuck and some friends were driving across town on an errand. So Chuck is driving his motorcycle. He's got a friend sitting on the seat behind him. And as passengers often do, he's holding on by wrapping his arms around Chuck and leaning in close. And behind them is a second motorcycle with another driver and passenger. And so these young men are working their way through these very twisty, narrow streets. And all of a sudden, they approach a hairpin corner. And as they approach that corner, without even consciously thinking of it, Chuck just pulls over immediately and stops. The guy behind him on that second motorcycle follows his lead and does the same thing. They stop, and seconds later, a huge semi-truck comes barreling around the corner and passes by within inches of them. If they had not stopped, they probably would have been killed. And as that truck goes speeding by, Chuck's passenger who's holding on to him, he tightens his grip and his head is right there next to Chuck's ear and he starts hollering, how did you know? How did you know? And Chuck said, I, I didn't know. I, I didn't know that truck was coming. But the Holy Spirit did. In that moment, the Holy Spirit overrode Chuck's conscious will and somehow prompted him to get out of the way. And by doing that, the Holy Spirit spared the lives of four young men. And that amazing story reminds us of a powerful truth about our God. He is sovereign. He is in charge. And yes, it's true that in many areas of life he gives us free will, but when it suits his purposes, he will impose his decisions on us. And what we need to realize is that whenever he does that, it's always to bring about something good. Something good for us. And often something very good for those around us. And that's what Chuck and his friends experienced on that day in Japan. And that's what the followers of Jesus experienced on a long ago, a long ago Sunday morning in Jerusalem on a Sunday called Pentecost. And what we're going to see is a display of the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 2 starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. Well, a quick bit of background. Pentecost was an annual ceremony established by God. And in the Old Testament, it's usually called the Feast of Weeks. And it's a time when the Jewish people come to Jerusalem and they consecrate themselves to God's law. Now, among other things, Jesus came to fulfill the law. So by sending the Holy Spirit into the world on this particular day, God is saying that the time of the law is over. From this day forward, the life of faith is to be spirit-driven, not law-driven. And God's Spirit accomplishes this purpose by imposing His will on the followers of Jesus, and He does so in a dramatically disruptive way, as we just read. And on that Pentecost Sunday, the Jewish Christians of Jerusalem, there's about 120 of them, they've gathered to pray. And all of a sudden, they hear wind inside the room. Now, it's not actually windy. The women don't have to protect their hairdos and the guys don't have to guard their comb-overs. There's no wind, but they hear wind. And it's not the sound of a soothing, gentle breeze. It's the sound of a rushing wind. It's a violent sound. Now, some of you remember the Columbus Day windstorm of 1962 that nailed the Pacific Northwest. And gusts here reached 86 miles per hour. And if you lived through that, you know what a rushing, violent wind sounds like. Julie and I lived much of our lives in Southern California, which is subject to what are called Santa Ana winds, with gusts sometimes reaching 70 miles per hour or more. So we know what a rushing, violent wind sounds like. And that's what these believers hear. And in the midst of this unsettling and probably deafening noise, then they see flames come down and rest over each person, and yet nobody gets scorched. And then everybody starts to speak in foreign languages that they don't know. All of this, the wind, the fire, the speaking in tongues, it's an unexplainable, supernatural moment. And for these Christians, it's what I call a wild, weird, and wonderful experience. Because that's what happens when God shows up in dramatic ways. But here's the key point. How much choice do the believers get in all of this? Zero. Zilch. 
nada. This is God's decision, not theirs. The followers of Jesus get baptized in the Holy Spirit on this day, in this way, because God says that's what's needed. And it is such a powerful reminder that God is in charge and we are not. That's why the Bible says that we're sheep and God is our shepherd. That's why the Apostle Paul regularly calls himself a servant of Jesus. It's because God is our master. And we periodically need to be reminded of this humbling truth. God's in charge. We're not. But now we need to ask this question, why does the Holy Spirit invade this room and disrupt this orderly prayer meeting? Well, he does it to arouse curiosity among the foreign visitors to to Jerusalem. And there are thousands of them in town for the Feast of Weeks. And as we will see, that's precisely why God picks this day to send the Spirit into the world. And that's why God gives the believers the miraculous gift of tongues. You see, these foreign Jews don't all speak the same languages. The Jews of Israel speak Hebrew. The Jews from foreign lands speak their own native languages. And most foreign Jews don't speak Hebrew. If they do know a little Hebrew, it's usually just enough to be able to participate in the temple rituals. And so when these Jews from all over the world come together, how do they communicate? They speak Greek. Everybody speaks Greek as either a first or second language because it is the universal language of commerce. And so if you're a foreign Jew and you don't speak Hebrew, and you come into Jerusalem for a feast where people speak Hebrew, you're going to talk Greek with all of the other Jews, but you don't expect to hear your own native language. And you sure don't expect to hear Jerusalem Jews who speak Hebrew praising God in the language of your own country. And if you did hear that, oh my goodness, would it grab your attention. Imagine that you and I are visiting some village in France where nobody speaks English. We'd feel very out of place, wouldn't we? And then on a Sunday morning, we're walking by a church, and through the windows, we hear that entire congregation praising God aloud in English, all of them. I I guarantee we'd stop (laughs) to find out what's going on. We'd catch our attention. Well, that's what these foreign Jews do when they unbelievably hear their own native languages spoken in the heart of Jerusalem. And as they stop, they want to know what's going on. Some of them have some sincere questions about, what does this mean? But then there's some in the crowd who are the kind of people who don't really want to understand. They prefer to explain away what they don't understand, so they resort to mockery and accuse the believers of being drunk. Sincere questioners, mockers. Both kinds of people are in this crowd. 
Well, all of that commotion sets the stage for Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, and to silence the scoffers and to respond to people with sincere questions, Peter stands up and preaches the first Christian sermon. And it's a message that begins with an emphasis on the Holy Spirit's transforming power. Let's take a look. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Okay, this is an Old Testament prophecy now. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We need to recognize that Peter has no advance warning that this moment is coming. And so he just stands up and starts talking. The Holy Spirit evidently empowers him to preach without any preparation and without any notes. And that makes me really jealous. <laughs> I would love to do sermons that way. It would save me so much prep time. <laughs> but notice also that Peter doesn't need a translator for his sermon, nor does he speak in foreign tongues. He most likely speaks in Greek, because that's the way everyone there will understand him. And the first thing Peter does is he wants everybody to know that these believers aren't drunk. Everybody factually fasts on Pentecost. And at the third hour of the day, which is 9 a.m., no one's had anything to eat or drink. So these people aren't drunk. And then as Peter is talking, the Holy Spirit evidently brings to his mind this prophecy from the Old Testament book of Joel. And by the way, this is a really good reason to memorize Scripture. So it's there in our heads. And when the Spirit prompts us, we can recite it. So Peter recites this portion of, of Scripture and he says that the events that they are witnessing there on Pentecost are a fulfillment of Joel's words, his ancient words about, quote-unquote, the last days. Now we might find that confusing because we often think that phrase, the last days, refers to the end of the world. And we also might be confused by the wording of this prophecy because there's references to the sun going dark and the moon turning to blood and other things that sound like end-of-the-world descriptions. What we need to realize is that Joel's prophecy uses what is called apocalyptic language. It's an ancient style of writing that employs vivid imagery to describe not a world-ending event, but a world-changing event. And that's what Pentecost is. What Joel's prophecy proclaims 
And what Peter now understands is that Pentecost is the beginning and the ending of an era. On this day, history enters a new season as the Holy Spirit transforms God's connection to human beings. From this day forward, the presence of God no longer will reside in the Jewish temple. The presence of God is going to reside in the followers of Jesus because the Holy Spirit will live in them. Think about that. God is relocating from a building to human beings. That's huge. And as we see later in the New Testament, through the work of the Spirit, God is going to move beyond Israel and He's going to form a new community of faith called the church. And this is going to be a community of Jews and Gentiles. Rich and poor, young and old, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, it's going to be a diverse community of people who are connected through Jesus, all of whom are filled with the Holy Spirit and all who have a part to play in the life of the church and in building the kingdom of God. And all of this is transformational because it's nothing at all like what these faithful Jews previously have experienced. They're used to a very narrow, regimented approach to community life. And this is reflected by the way in which they worship. My wife and I once saw this firsthand when we visited an Orthodox Jewish synagogue. And in that synagogue, they worship the way that traditional Jews have worshiped for centuries. We walked in the door, the first thing we noticed, there's a wooden divider right down the center of the room. Women on this side, men on the other. Though Julie sat over there with the women, I sat over there with the men. And the other women who were there They were merely spectators. They weren't allowed to read Scripture. They weren't allowed to pray. Most of them didn't even join in the singing. They sat and they watched. It was the men on my side who prayed and read Scripture and sang. There was a young boy sitting near me, and guess what? He was excluded too because he was too young. And even though I was a man... I'm a Gentile, so I also was excluded and was a spectator in the worship of God. Adult worship, active participation in worship was limited to Jewish men, period. And on this day when the Holy Spirit invades, he puts an end to all of that because the Holy Spirit baptizes every follower of Jesus and he equips men and women and young and old and Jews and Gentiles with spiritual gifts. Every believer now can help build the kingdom of God. And as we see this story unfold throughout the New Testament, it's amazing what happens. In Acts chapter 10, we see the Gentiles brought into the community of faith so people like us, because I'll bet most of us are Gentiles, we get to be part of God's family. In Titus chapter 2, we find instructions for people of all ages, young and old, about how to live as good and godly people because age is not an exclusion. In 1 Corinthians 11, we read about men and women leading prayers in worship and even exercising the spiritual gift of prophecy. And so that's why I love it when men and women and seniors and children, we read scripture, we offer prayers, we, we lead in singing praise to God during worship and everyone who comes in gets to participate. 
because we're all part of God's family. And the Spirit equips all of us in various ways that we need to encourage and celebrate. And if you're a child or a teenager, you are not too young to be significant. Children and teens need to discover their spiritual gifts because God wants to unleash His power in their lives. And if you're a senior citizen, you are not too old to be significant. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are filled with the Holy Spirit and He wants His power to be at work in you and through you until you draw your last breath. So the coming of the Spirit truly launches a new age for everyone who believes in Jesus. And the overriding purpose of the Spirit's ministry is not just to bless us. It's not just to help us live by faith. It's not just to give us spiritual gifts. The overriding purpose of the Spirit's ministry is to increase the number of believers, to enlarge the family of God, to increase the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. And that's why Peter recites Joel's promise in verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that point leads naturally into the next part of Peter's sermon. He goes on to explain to this crowd that the Lord in Joel's prophecy is none other than Jesus. And Peter explains that in some detail in verses 22 through 35 of this chapter. And rather than read it to you, I'm going to give you a quick summary of Peter's key points. Number one, the death of Jesus on the cross was not an accident. It was part of God's plan. Number two, Jesus did not stay in the grave but was raised from the dead. And number three, those facts indicate that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. So the crowd listens intently as Peter explains these truths about Jesus. And then as we're going to see in the next part of the passage, in their response to Peter's sermon, we're going to see why the Spirit has arrived with power. He did not come into the world for the purpose of producing wind and fire and tongues. Those are just tools that the Holy Spirit used on that historic day to draw a crowd. And the Holy Spirit draws that crowd because He wants to save people from their sins. He wants to bring them into God's family and continue the work of Jesus to build the kingdom of God. So in the final part of this passage, what we see is the Holy Spirit's saving power. Let's look at starting in verse 36. This is the end of Peter's sermon, his Final point, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made, made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, this is the crowd that's listening, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the arrest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children 
and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. On the last night of his life, Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would be coming. And among other things, he said that part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict people of their sinfulness. And that's exactly what happens here. Because of the power of the Spirit, these people listening to Peter are cut to the heart. And they realize they're separated from God. And they want to know how do they, how do they close that gap? And so they ask Peter, what should we do? And that's always the key question to ask in a moment like that. When we recognize that we need to be rescued from our sins and we cannot fix that problem on our own, what should we do? When we believe that Jesus was sent by God to solve the problem of our sin and he died so we could get connected to God, what should we do? And that is the right question to ask because we must do something. No one in the crowd asks, what should we believe? Because they already believe what Peter told them about Jesus. That's why they're convicted. Now they need to act on what they believe, and that means they must take a step of faith. Because without action, there's no faith. So they ask this key question, and Peter, led by the Holy Spirit, provides a clear and concise answer, and he describes how they can take a life-changing step of faith. They need to repent and be baptized. Repentance means we acknowledge to God that we're separated from Him because of our sinful attitudes and actions. We, we want God to know that we, we want His forgiveness, and we desire to live differently in the future. That's repentance. Baptism means to be immersed in water and to experience spiritual transformation that results in receiving God's forgiveness. But let's just ponder that last one for just a minute. How can dunking someone in water produce a changed life? Listen carefully. It can't because the water doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. When we enter the baptistry as an act of faith and we confess our sinfulness and acknowledge Jesus as Lord, then we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit meets us in the water in response to our faith. It's the Spirit who makes Christian baptism more than just a physical act. It is a deeply spiritual act. It's a transformative act. And the living God meets us there and he causes us to die to our old nature and he raises us into new life and he washes away our sins and he helps us live as followers of Jesus when we emerge from the water. Faith in Jesus coupled with the action of the Holy Spirit. When we take a step of faith and enter the baptistry and pledge ourselves 
to God. It is a transformative, disruptive act. And on this day of Pentecost, in response to the mercifully disruptive work of the Holy Spirit, some 3,000 people repent, and they're baptized, and they're forgiven, and they're changed by the Holy Spirit who now lives within them. And most importantly, they're now equipped to share their faith with others, and to baptize others. And in fact, I believe that, that that's exactly what takes place throughout this day. After all, let's just think for a moment about the logistics. 3,000 people get baptized. Well, how can 3,000 people listen to Peter's sermon all at once? They can't all fit inside the house where he's preaching. The streets of Jerusalem are very, very narrow. 3,000 people can't gather outside in the street all at once to hear him. So how does this work? Well, here's what I think takes place. The Holy Spirit does all these miracles to draw a crowd. And so there is a crowd that gathers and some of those people respond to Peter's preaching. All over ancient Jerusalem, there are numerous pools that can be used for baptizing. So as people respond to Peter's invitation to repent and be baptized, the believers start heading out, going to these various pools to baptize people. And along the way, they tell people what's happening. And word starts to spread around town that God's up to something. Something big's happening over at this house. So more and more people head on over. And verse 40 tells us that Peter said a whole lot more than is recorded for us here in the passage. With many other words, he kept talking to them. I think Peter preaches on and off all day long. And all day long, people keep heading out into the city to perform baptisms. And as they go, they tell everyone they meet what God is up to. And all day long, more people get baptized, and they're excited, and they tell their friends and baptize their friends. And then those people get excited, and they tell their friends and baptize them. I, I think it's an amazing day of spiritual birth as believers continually reproduce their faith in Jesus with others. It's all done the saving power of the Holy Spirit leading people to Jesus. Now, what I've just said about logistics, that's entirely my opinion. However it happens, though, the result is a radical transformation. At 9 a.m., there are about 120 followers of Jesus in the world, all of them citizens of Israel. And by the end of that day, there's more than 3,100 believers who are citizens of many different nations. And within just a few days, as the Feast of Weeks ends and these people head home, then the message of Jesus will begin to be carried throughout the world. Because of what happens on this day, the international church of Jesus Christ has been born. Pentecost is the birthday of the church. So Pentecost truly ushers in a brand new age for believers. And this new age is launched because on this particular day, God imposes His will on His people. However, we know He doesn't do that very often because God does give us free will. 
And yet, as the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, we can misuse our free will to extinguish the Spirit's fire in our lives. It's rather amazing. God gives us so much freedom that we can ignore the Holy Spirit if we want to. And it's sad, but I think we all have a tendency to do that at times because we like to be in control. And we want to have orderly lives, and we don't like it when the Spirit shows up and disrupts things. And as a result, we try to tame the Holy Spirit. What's it like to tame something powerful? I saw this in a vivid way a few years ago on a family trip when my wife and, and myself and my kids, we were able to visit in uh, Minnesota a buffalo rancher. And that rancher, Alan, put us in his pickup truck and he drove us out on his range so we could see his herd of buffalo. And he parked on a knoll and here are hundreds and hundreds of massive buffalo just grazing on his open range. And Alan says, you want to see some power? Watch this. He revs his engine. He races his pickup off that knoll right toward those buffalo. And they hear the sound, they see the vehicle coming, and they begin to stampede away from us. And it sounded like thunder. Sitting in that pickup truck, we could feel their hooves pounding the ground. It was a display of raw, unbridled power. And it was awesome. So Alan brings his truck to a halt. The herd calms down. We sit there for a few minutes. And then there's this really big bull that's been standing apart. And he sees the truck and he starts loping right toward us. And I start to get a little bit nervous. And Alan said, don't be nervous. Watch this. And he rolls down his window. And this massive Buffalo walks right up to the car and he had a look on his face like a, like a goofy, love-struck puppy. And he sticks his head in through the window, it's filling the window, and he starts to lick Alan's cheek. He's going, <laughs> this massive buffalo was the silliest, goofiest thing I'd ever seen. And Alan is hugging this buffalo and the buffalo's licking him like a little tiny puppy. They spent a few affectionate minutes together. <laughs> and then the buffalo happily loped away. And then Alan told us the story. That buffalo had been born in a blizzard, a Minnesota blizzard, and his mother had died. So Alan brought the baby into the ranch house. And he put him in a box in the kitchen. And he fed him from a bottle until he was able to live on his own outside. That buffalo became a family pet. But he also became tame. And by taming him, Alan had greatly reduced the desire of that bull to demonstrate his power. To a great extent, Alan had taken control of that bull. And he'd put out the buffalo's fire. And I think that's what you and I sometimes do to the Holy Spirit. 
Because if we're honest, we prefer the tamed pet version of the Spirit to the raw, powerful, unsettling version of the Spirit. We like the Spirit to be tamed so He won't disrupt our plans or prompt us to do something that's unusual or awkward or uncomfortable. Yet if we put out the Spirit's fire, then we're going to lose the power that God has given us to represent Jesus well in this world. If you and I tame the Spirit, oh yes, it's true, our lives will be more orderly. But we're going to miss out on the rich purposes of God. We're going to miss out on the joy of leading people to faith in Jesus and helping to build the kingdom of God. We need to stop fighting God for control. We need to open up our hands and loosen our grip and yield to the power of the Spirit. And this means we must accept that at times the Spirit may step into your life and mine in disruptive ways. Yet we don't need to fear that because when the Spirit disrupts things, it's always to do something good. And so we need to ask, how might the Spirit then want to disrupt your life and mine? I don't think it typically will be as dramatic as it was on Pentecost. But I do think the Spirit still might push us into some new areas, push us in some new directions, perhaps might urge us to do things that are uncomfortable. Here's some examples. If you've never taken that first step of faith, then the invitation offered by Peter is for you to repent, to be baptized, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and let God take away your sins and begin the process of transforming you. Or perhaps you're a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized because you think it's unnecessary. Well, I believe this passage we've just looked at shows how important it is. Or you might be avoiding baptism because you're just uncomfortable at the thought of getting wet in front of a crowd. And you know what, we can schedule a private baptism because we want to help you take that important step of faith. Here's the point, whatever your circumstances, whatever is that next step for you, that next step might feel strange, it might feel risky, it might feel uncomfortable, and I just want to encourage you, listen to the Holy Spirit. Don't resist Him. Let the Spirit draw you in and connect you more closely to Jesus. And then here's something really important that we all need to consider. When it comes to sharing our faith with others, what might the Spirit prompt us to do? How might He push you and I into some new territory so we can help people who are spiritually adrift find their way into God's family? Well, it might be that day when we're out taking a, <clears throat> excuse me, out taking a walk. And instead of just waving hi to our neighbor and passing on, Maybe that day the Spirit gives us a little nudge to stop and actually have a conversation. And during that conversation to listen closely to see if it's appropriate to make a spiritual comment or two. It might be that time when we're standing in a checkout line at the store and we feel the Spirit prompt us to to ask the clerk, how are you doing? To strike up a conversation and see where it leads. 
It might be when a new neighbor moves into our street and, and the Spirit says, you know what? Invite them over for dinner and get to know them, build a relationship. And, and you build that relationship where over time you can share your lives with those neighbors and hopefully your love for Jesus with those neighbors. Perhaps a coworker expresses a need or someone in your family expresses a need and in response to that you say, can I pray for you? You know, when we make that offer, you never know what kind of spiritual conversation might result. I have found that offering to pray for people's needs is a great way to break through barriers and start a spiritual conversation. But sometimes I'm tempted not to do that. But I will if I'm listening to the Spirit. I believe if we stop taming the Holy Spirit, He will help us make connections with all kinds of people. He will gently lead us into new territory and new relationships where we can extend our influence into the community around us. And as we interact with a diverse group of people, the Holy Spirit can give us the right words to say that we will plant spiritual seeds. And we can be part of the process of drawing people to Jesus, increasing the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven, building the kingdom of God. And it all boils down to one key question. Are you and I listening to the Holy Spirit? Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, that first Pentecost was an amazing day and we're so grateful that you poured out your Spirit and that we have the privilege of having the Holy Spirit within us. Please help us learn how to listen to him more and more and more. Give us the faith to yield to him more and more. Oh, Father, please help us not to be afraid of the Spirit, but to joyfully and eagerly let his power work in us and through us for our sakes and for the sake of people who are spiritually lost in our very broken world. I pray, Father, that all of us, men and women, young and old, that we each might have the joy of leading people we know into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. And Father, we know this can happen as we trust you and trust the voice of the Spirit who lives within us. Help us to embrace the power of the Spirit. And we pray this, our God, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.